Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is Habakkuk 3, uh, verses 16 to 19. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my, on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome again to Holy Trinity Church. I'm John, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we have been studying the book of Habakkuk and thinking about this idea of a cry for renewal. Uh, what we just sang comes from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And the words of that song put it pretty simply and clearly, Lord, we've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds. <laughs> but sort of that was a long time ago. And renew your fame and renew your deeds in our day. And then because there's such a picture of wrath in the, in the book of Habakkuk, he says, in wrath, uh, remember mercy. And what's been happening over the last few weeks is a little bit like what happens for those of you who go to the gym after you haven't been there for a while and you start to work out muscles that you ha just haven't been working out for a while and they get really sore. And in the book of Habakkuk, in terms of prayer, there are certain prayer muscles that Habakkuk uses that aren't the sort of normal ones maybe that you use in prayer. He uh, teaches us how to lament. He teaches us to look at the world and the injustice of the world and the violence of the world and to, to cry out. Tuesday this week in our neighborhood in Hyde Park on the south side, two people were murdered. One person uh, about 100 feet from our house, a rifle sprayed trying to uh, hit somebody who's running for Congress, actually, and he was safe. But one of the young men that was killed was a graduate of the University of Chicago. And on Friday, the president of the University of Chicago was on the radio, and he was sharing. And uh, what he said was, when we, with the other people across our country and across the world, see violence like this, he said, it makes our hearts unsteady, and it causes us to cry out for answers. When I heard him say that, I thought, well, that is exactly the heart of Habakkuk, crying out to God for answers. He teaches us to lament, but he teaches us to listen as well. In chapter 2, verse 1, there's this image of Habakkuk climbing up into his watch post and saying, I'm going to wait, God, for the answer that you will give me. And then there's a, what I'll just call longing, which is what we just sang, God in our day. Please see the violence of the world. See the injustice of the world. See what's happening in our world. And bring renewal and revival. If our, if our city, if our hearts need anything, 
It is this sense of renewal and revival. The title of my sermon today is, I'll call it the unique trust of communion with God. And I'm calling it thinking about communion with God because Habakkuk takes you through the highs and the lows of a relationship with God. So there in, in the opening chapters, it's almost like he's yelling at God. He's, he's looking at the calls that God is making in the world and, and saying, this isn't right, this isn't fair. You're absent. You're not listening. You're not doing anything, God. And that's part of his communion with God. But the listening is part of his communion as well. And the longing is part of his communion as well. So there's a way in which Habakkuk is teaching us about communion with God, that it takes a number of different forms and does not always take the same form. And my claim this morning is this, is simply that communion with God, through the lament, through the listening, through the longing, brings a kind of confidence in God as well. Or you could call it trust. Really, the theme of this book is Habakkuk 2.4 that the righteous people will live by faith or by trust. So I'm just going to outline three ways that Habakkuk shows trust. After he goes through the the peaks and valleys of his prayer, at this kind of closing poem, he has a posture of trust, but it has a a few different aspects to it. And I'll, I'll just call it this. One is the trust of waiting. Very first thing in verse 16 is he commits himself to wait upon God. The second one is you could call it the trust of rejoicing. First one is really waiting in the midst of, of judgment. And the second one is waiting in the midst of famine. Or Sorry, of rejoicing in the midst of famine. And the third one is a commitment to draw on the strength of God. So he's trusting in all three of those situations. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we ask for the depth and the the kind of community that Habakkuk had with you. The willingness not to merely curl up into a ball and hide from you, but to express our indignation, our frustration, to sue you, so to speak, Lord. Show us the areas of our lives where we need to wait. Show us the areas of our lives where we need a little more joy and rejoicing and show us the areas of our lives where we need a little more strength. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's three kinds of trust in this passage. I'll I'll call the first one the trust of waiting even in fear. If you look at verse 16, it's the first response that Habakkuk has. And he he has just... Uh, seen a tremendous vision of God that you could call a theophany, which really means an appearance of God in verses 1 to 15. So after he prays, oh God, renew your fame, renew your work in our days, he sees this vision of God coming from, the text says, from Teman, as if from the south, coming up into Jerusalem, up towards Judah and to Israel. And it's like God has light in his hands. It's this picture of the appearance of God. What would it look like? If God appeared in the world. And then he realizes, beginning in verse 9, that God, chapter 3, verse 9, that God's a warrior. That he has a sheath and bow. 
In other words, he moves from this God coming as a storm God of light to a warrior who is going to defeat his enemies. And then in the last few verses of chapter 3, he does indeed, in this vision, he does indeed defeat his enemy. Look at verse 14. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So Habakkuk has gone from angst in chapter 1, anxiety in chapter 1, to awe. And now, it just, the way that it describes him almost as, is as if every aspect of his body is reacting with fear. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble before me, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come on the people who invade us. The poet is using as many images as possible to show what fear looks like. I love that one that says the rottenness has entered into his bones. It's like all of the marrow in his bones has been sucked away and instead trembling and fear has been placed within. Maybe it's happened to you before where you've stood up a little bit too fast and you get a little bit of a head rush and your legs sort of sway underneath you. That's what's happening to Habakkuk here. He's, he's standing up in the presence of God and he is dizzy. He feels as if he cannot hold on. I suppose it's no surprise that Habakkuk should respond in this way because in the vision, when the earth sees God coming, sees God showing up, it shakes, it convulses. Verse 6 says that the mountains scatter. Verse 7 says that the curtains from the land of Midian tremble. And it's, this, is a, this is a victory psalm, verses 1 to 15 are, of God riding forth and conquering his enemies. I do want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if the skies opened and suddenly you had a vision of God. I always remember in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they see the ark for the first time, the, the people who open the ark, this was like really high tech for the 80s or whenever this came out. Their faces melted and they had like created these characters with wax faces and then suddenly uh, thrown heat on them and their faces just sort of melted in front of the camera. I imagine that's what it would be like to see God face to face. The scriptures say that no one can see God and live. And so the earth is convulsing. Where previously Habakkuk was complaining about God's absence, now he is shaking in God's presence. And God has answered his questions. When, when Habakkuk earlier had said, why are you so idle? God is now saying, look at what it looks like when I show up. Actually, what he had said in chapter 1, verse 6 is, if you were able to see what I was doing, you would be astounded. Because our perspective on who God is and what he's doing in the world is so limited, so finite, so marginal. He's saying your mind would be blown if you could see everything that is happening. But there's more than terror that's happening here in verse 16. There's also waiting. Look at the end of verse 16 to see this commitment of Habakkuk. He says, he speaks of his terror, but then he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. Don't you love the imagery there? It's not just waiting, it's quiet waiting. It's like the kindergarten teacher who is trying to calm everyone down. We're going to wait for a few minutes, but everybody needs to be, you know, trying all these tricks to get children to be quiet. This is what Habakkuk is saying. 
as all the pupils of his heart, so to speak, are being quieted in the presence of God. Habakkuk has learned how to lament out loud, but he's also learned quiet waiting. Remember Psalm 46, it says, be still and know that I am God. So prayer has different postures. Prayer has different kinds of structure to it. And one of the responses here is the trust of waiting, which is a great lesson for all of us because God often often calls on us to wait. There's a great uh, book on prayer called It Happens After Prayer by H.B. Charles, African-American preacher in Jacksonville, Florida. And he uh, basically, he just tells us, God does not always work according to your timetable. You might be a person who's five minutes early, or you might be a person who's 10 minutes late or seven minutes late. My brother was giving a little speech in honor of my father on Friday night, and there's a train that divides where my father works from where my father lives. And he said, my dad is usually seven minutes late because of the train, but it was an excuse he could use both ways, either going to work or coming home. Sorry, the train made me late. God may cause you to wait, but he is never late. Here's what H.P. Charles says. He says, he says um, have you ever asked God for something that seems so important and urgent at the time? I have several times. He says, I once asked for a transition and God blessed me where I was. I once asked God for relief and God used the pressures to strengthen me. Another time I asked for my territory to be enlarged and God taught me how to live within my boundaries. He says, God taught me now looking back that I recognize how foolish and short-sighted and unnecessary some of my prayer requests were. But then he says, praise God for the prayers that he did not answer the way that I wanted to. It's not, every father does not always give their children what they ask in their time, and sometimes he tells them to wait. And the amount of waiting that Habakkuk is going to have to do here is quite a bit. In terms of historical context, this was written between 609 and 605 B.C., and it's envisioning the day when 587, 586, when the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, would come and overtake Jerusalem and overthrow it. But it's not just speaking of that. It's actually speaking of the day that King Cyrus would overthrow the Babylonian Empire. And so what Habakkuk is saying is, God, you've spoken of this day when you will take the violent and judge them in the people of Judah through the Babylonians, but you've also spoken of the day when you would invade the Babylonians and overthrow their empire as well. He's talking about waiting for more than 70 years. So one of the ways that we are called upon to trust God is to wait, to learn to pray, to learn to lament, but also to recognize that though God always answers prayer, he does not always answer prayer according to our timetable or according to our wishes. And if he did, he wouldn't be God, you would be. He is sovereign. So the first commitment that Habakkuk makes here is one of waiting. Trust is waiting. But trust in this section is not only waiting with some fear and trembling, but it's also rejoicing. Rejoicing in a famine. And 
really this, these next three verses are some of the most beautiful, most poetic, most faith-affirming and illustrating pictures in all of Scripture and really all of literature as well. It's rejoicing in the midst of famine. This scripture is enduring in part because of its poetic power. From verse 16, it shifts, where it's really picturing the terror in his body. It's now picturing the famine in nature. And there, the, the imagery turns to agrarian terms. There's actually six images in verse 17 alone. Um, it's sort of a three substanzas here that are each of them parallel, but look at it. Though the fig tree should not blossom, that's one, nor fruit be on the vines, that's two. The produce, produce of the olive fail, three. And the fields yield no food, that's four. The flock be cut off from the fold, that's five. And there be no herd in the stalls. What he's doing is going maybe from lesser to greater, from the figs to the flocks, and saying there will be in the day of famine that comes because of the Babylonians, our cupboards will be all empty. Habakkuk is, it's one of two things happening here. It's either that Habakkuk is actually envisioning the famine that will come because of the Babylonians, or he's simply picturing the worst that he thinks could happen and then saying, as a result of him seeing his vision of God, as a result of him hearing the voice of God, he has determined that he will rejoice. This is not a kind of petty rejoicing. This is not a superficial re rejoicing from Habakkuk. Let me put it differently. He's a changed man here. He's seen the end of all things in chapter 3, verse 15, 3, 1 to 15. He's seen God crush the head of evil, and it's caused him so to tremble, that he realizes that if his communion with God is secure, he can go through any circumstances of life. Most of us think of joy being partially related to our circumstances, but for Habakkuk, joy is an inner commitment to communion with God, not dependent upon his external circumstances. It's rejoicing in the midst of famine. You know, surprisingly, I was really wrestling with what's the, what is the connection between the terrifying picture of judgment in 1 to 15 and the commitment to joy here. And it's almost as if this terrifying vision of God's judgment was an invitation to joy. As strange as that sounds. Because in God's wrath, he had remembered mercy. Listen to the resolve. In, in verse 16, he says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. And now here, there's six concessions, though the fig tree, though fruit. And through all of the concessions, he says with tremendous resolve, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And we just sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, as Isaiah chapter 6 says. And we should shake at the holiness of God. 
but we should also rejoice at the sovereign mercy of God. And that's what, that's what Habakkuk is doing here. He's rejoicing that he knows that though the day of trouble is coming upon his nation, upon the Babylonians, that God will indeed save his, his own people, what he calls his anointed in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. It's really interesting that judgment doesn't preclude joy. Let me just say that again. Judgment doesn't preclude joy. It actually inspires it for Habakkuk, particularly because he sees mercy. Joy is the, in this section, joy is the fruit of confidence in a sovereign judging God. That's why he can be joyful here, because he knows that wrath is coming on the wicked. If you think about the cross, the cross of Jesus is both an expression of judgment and of joy, of wrath and of mercy. It's an expression of God's terrifying judgment upon Jesus Christ, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. But it's so interesting that in the midst of judgment that we hear of Jesus' joy as well. Think of uh, Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, bearing its shame. Joy and judgment are mingled together on the cross. The son joyfully goes to the cross because he knows that it is our salvation. So part of what this text is saying is that you can have joy without, without flocks. You can have joy without fruit. You can have joy without figs. And you're like, yeah, I never eat figs, right? Who eats figs anyways? They're, okay, Lawrence does, thanks. And Jenny does. There's a restaurant in, in uh, Chicago called uh, Lou Mitchell's on Jackson. And it's, uh, some of you guys have been there. And when you walk in, it's, they have like these kind of bizarre, unrelated traditions. When you walk in, they have a basket of fresh baked donut holes with like um, powdered sugar sprinkled on top. And they give you one of those. And then when you leave, for some reason, they give you milk duds, a box of milk duds. I have no idea why. But when you sit down then at, at the table and they bring out your food, they give you a prune and an orange. And I, I have no idea what, like who eats prunes in our day? And maybe some people do. But I just look at it like this bizarre thing. Uh, prunes, figs. Figs were dessert, basically, in ancient Israel. Uh, 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 a pie sort of made of figs is what you would eat to celebrate. So what he's saying here is that there's a day coming, or there's a day which he can envision, in which there's no wine in the wine cellar, when there's no money in the savings account, when the, so to speak, mutton chops are gone, when the car breaks down, when there's no fig cakes, when there's no wine, when the milk is gone, and when the wool is gone, Habakkuk resolves that the circumstances won't control his attitude, but his attitude will control his circumstances and control his life. This is a journey of prayer that he has been through. Like he, He's matured before our eyes. Not to say lament is immature, but he has gone through the valley, and now he is walking in heights. 
Remember what happens in Job? What he says in his calamity? There's a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a message that says the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and struck them down. And while that person was yet speaking, another comes and says, hey, there was a fire from heaven that has come down and burned up the sheep and the servants consumed them, and I alone have come to tell you. And while he is speaking, another one comes in and says, look, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took the camels and struck the servants with the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, and I alone have escaped you. Listen to the response of Job. Job arose. This is a picture of lament. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell on the ground. And he worshiped. And then he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and then the unbelievable statement, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, and he takes away. There's a resolute commitment to hoping in God that Habakkuk has here. That is part of the lesson of the book of Habakkuk. He's like the Apostle Paul when he writes from jail. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. How will you respond when the note about cancer comes? When someone that is dear to you and loved to you is taken quickly? What's happened to Habakkuk is that the vision of God and the voice of God are now more powerful to him than any of the circumstances of his life. Habakkuk saw violence, but he also saw that God was going to crush the head of the wicked one day. Why were the disciples willing to give up everything they had? Because they believed that God had crushed the head of wickedness and raised Jesus from the dead. And so no longer did their possessions mean as much to them as they had before. Even if the ravages of war come, Habakkuk is going to trust in God. So trust is waiting here. Trust is rejoicing. And then trust is a kind of uh, drawing strength from God. It's really two commitments, yet I will, yet I will, and then a declaration which says, God, the Lord, is my strength. Take a look, if you have the text open, to the last word there, strength on the first line of verse 19, the Lord is my strength. You could substitute for that word strength here the word army or warrior or troops. What has happened is he's seen this vision of God coming as a warrior, and now he says, that he will wait and he will rejoice. And he says the reason he can do that is because God is his army. God will fight on his behalf is what he is saying. And the, the language there is of the Jehovah God, the eternal God, the great I am. You could also interpret it as God is my wealth as well. He's saying God's my army, God's my warrior, God is my wealth. 
He says, this is what he says, look at verse 19. God, the Lord is my strength. And then he uses the imagery of a deer and speaks of how light-footed and sure-footed they are, how um, undeterred. The imagery is of a sure-footed deer. You know how they have those sort of very narrow hooves. And if you've seen the ones that can sort of the goats that can kind of climb on a mountain. They can hook their hooves on like an inch. He's speaking of the sure-footedness of the Judean flock and their ability to navigate through the mountains. He says, he makes me tread on my high places. If you've seen a deer, sometimes you've seen them just bound away. He's speaking of the, he's saying in a sense, the spring is back in my step. He's not saying that everything has been resolved for him or that he won't go to the depths of lament again. He's just saying that after seeing this awesome vision of God crushing wickedness and violence and evil in the world, it's given him a kind of confidence that allows his steps to spring forth like a deer. It's like Isaiah 40. The end of Isaiah 40. This is what the prophet says. Have you, have you not known... Have you not heard the Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? What Isaiah is doing is what Habakkuk has done, which is is somehow hook his vision into the eternality and the immensity of God. He doesn't grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And then these famous words, even youth shall be faint and weary and young men shall fall exhausted. Listen to Isaiah 40, 31. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. There's, there's strength in the vision and voice of God that doesn't come from any other source in the whole world. That's why I'm calling this communion with God. The communion with God of lament and longing and listening to him gives you a kind of strength that is not, a, not an outward and impressive strength, but a strength of weakness. Those, those great words of the Apostle Paul in chapter 12 of uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, he says to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. My wife and I went to a retirement dinner for my dad uh, after 50 years uh, of work and for my mom. My dad is about as frail as you can possibly imagine now having had a back surgery that nicked a nerve. His legs don't really work anymore. Uh, he's just been a strong man all of his life. But as my brother was sharing, he shared these two verses, that, that his strength now really looks like weakness, that all of his rest is really in the strength of the Lord. Second Corinthians 4, 7 was the second verse that he shared with us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Habakkuk is just a, a shivering man of prayer. 
but he has seen something that is so great and so powerful in the head-crushing victory of God himself over sin, over death, over judgment, that he now says that his heart is like the feet of a deer. Habakkuk helps us to pray. He gives us the language for renewal. He gives us the longing for renewal. He gives us this kind of light-footed confidence. Communion with God leads to confidence in God. I just want to encourage you to keep exercising the different muscles of prayer. Sometimes it's time to exercise the muscles of lament in prayer, and sometimes it's time to exercise muscles of quietness and waiting and quiet rejoicing and placing your strength in him. This earth-shaking vision of God calls us to trust him, waiting for him to deliver us, rejoicing in disaster and drawing strength like a deer. I remember, I'll close with this, I remember going to Israel for the first time, the only time, a number of years ago, and I had just preached on a passage in 1 Samuel that that talked about David being in the cave, and then it, it talked about those sheep that uh, were, that it, it was called the, the cave of the sheep, actually, because of the sheep that are nearby this cave. And I preached on a, on a Sunday, and then on Monday afternoon, I saw those sheep running across like a 90-degree angle of a wall, and it just reminded me of the the power of the image of God in the world and the way he speaks here in Habakkuk. Let the vision of God and let the voice of God call you to resilient prayer, to hopeful waiting, and to sure-footed confidence in him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture of Habakkuk as a changed man. As Habakkuk, whose communion with you has gone through the depths of discouragement and despair and now has gone to the heights of confidence. And Lord, we pray that, you would, that you'd exercise our own trust in you in these different ways, Lord, that you'd teach those of us who are in a season of waiting to wait with hope. And for those of us who need a voice of rejoicing, to be able to say with Habakkuk, though everything should fail, yet I will rejoice in you. And to find strength in our weakness, we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.